Welcome to the live show. If you're just joining us, you haven't heard anything that just got said, but uh, that's okay because it was all just really heartfelt and emotional. It was all really, really nice and deep and personal, and you didn't want to hear that anyway since you didn't come out to a live show at 10 Eastern on Fridays. I do talk before for quite a bit, say hello to everybody in the lobby. You didn't really want to hear what I'm alluding to right now about what's going on in my personal life and how I'm feeling or thinking about this whole epidemic and everything that's happening. You didn't want to hear. If you did, you would have been here Fridays, 10 Eastern, on the server. You can find out more. Twitter, at Real Grey Night. So, we're all doing prepping right now. Some of us are buying foodstuffs. Some of us are buying buttstuffs. But there is a prepping that I think my audience needs that you haven't really considered. And I don't mean to mansplain, right? Before we begin as a man, I don't really want to explain this to people. It's just that I want to say... Back during another crisis, this was not national, this was regional, but it was a natural disaster. I found out that a woman who bought a lot of prepping supplies didn't buy prepping supplies for her time of the month. And ever since then, like in the back of my mind, it's been like, of course, like, because obviously when you're in a panic mode, you might not remember everything. Yeah. And everything was fine with this. She used, she used toilet paper back back when that existed. I'm so sorry for listening to this from the future. Back before 2021 and everyone used bidets, we all had toilet paper. We had this cloth. We had this stuff that we would stuff in our butts and down toilet. It's very weird. We don't really know why we used it either. Anyway. <laughs> so she, she just, you know, it was... It was a sudden disaster. We didn't have a lot of notification. And, and I didn't get everything that I needed as well, but I don't have a vagina. And ever since then, I've thought about, when it comes to emergency prepping, women have more concerns than men. Never really occurred to me before that experience, obviously. Oh, of course. Women might need, logistically speaking, some more support than men. And that's why... I want to go over some basics about COVID-19 and how to prep for the next couple of months. Because there's some things that people have been going over. Dry foodstuffs, toilet paper, medicine. That's good. But when you think about it, your uterus is really a liability. Now, just let that sink in for just a moment. But maybe Republicans were always right trying to get rid of those fucking things? Just think about it. Just hold on. Just really, just just hear me out. <laughs> Republicans have been trying to get those things out of you guys for 25 fucking years. Just shut the whole fucking thing down. And when you think about it, when we're, when we're looking at, like, the logistics of everything right now, you gotta say, if people are locked in their homes for a couple of months, it's a real benefit not to have one of those things. I'm just saying you might want to consider, as part of your survival prep, a hysterectomy. I mean, think about it. Really. 
Everybody else's survival, just every, just everybody else's survival prep, and everyone's all like, ooh, look at the number of tampons I got. And then you could just be all like, look at the number of hysterectomies I got. <laughs> look how much money I'm saving in bulk. <laughs> like everyone's like, why would you buy a hundred things of hundred bars with your toilet paper when you could just buy one bidet attachment? Same thing, ladies. Why stock a pantry full of tampons when you could just take one tamp out? Yeah, thank you. I worked on that one the whole ten minutes ago since I came up with this routine. <laughs> it's getting weird that's the end of the uterus jokes thank christ so i don't know how this is gonna sound because sometimes when like i'm not a comedian obviously because none of nobody's laughing but me but if i were a comedian sometimes when when a comedian talks about themselves in like a heroic voice or like I'm the smart guy and, and other people aren't, I <laughs> I don't quite know what to make of it because I don't know where the persona ends and the performer begins. You know what I'm saying? But just real quick here, I want you to assume that everything I'm saying is as a stand-up comedian and that it's a persona so that I can just say it and then we can we can move on without too much hate mail. Before 2020, I didn't realize how dumb people were. I really didn't. Like, I knew, but I didn't know. Before 2020, I did not know how dumb people were. I did, and I didn't. I mean, I did, because people would come up to me sometimes and yell about, like, FEMA death camps, or, like, the UN and Satan. Like, I did know. I did know how dumb some people were, but also I didn't know how dumb some people were. And I, I'm i not trying to be rude. I really am not, because I get that people are doing their own things. And I swear to you, this is true. Hand over heart. I read the news every day. I, I watch Rachel Maddow every night that she's on. She's the longest-term relationship. I have a longer-term relationship with Rachel Maddow than my own parents. That's true. All of my, both of my parents walked out in my life on me when I was a child at some point. So the longest consecutive relationship I've had in my life is Rachel Maddow. That is a true statement. <laughs> Sometimes parents just left for a while, while being months to years. And then they would come back for a while and then leave for a while again. So the longest consecutive relationship I have in my life is Rachel Maddow. And I swear to you, I don't recall ever hearing the word mares, M-E-R-S, okay? I never, I don't recall ever hearing this term. I guess it was a story. I guess it killed people. M-E-R-S, it was a story a couple years ago. I didn't give no shits about Ebola until, like, it hit five countries at once. And I was like, what the fuck? And then that was it. Didn't care about Ebola except for that one weekend. Ebola's crazy-ass weekend when it hit all the headlines. Besides that, I didn't care. The only reason I know what Zika was is because I was dating a woman at the time that was obsessed with Zika. She wasn't even Brazilian 
or going to the Olympics or anything. She was just obsessed with Zika. So that's the only reason I found out I didn't give any shits about Zika. What I'm trying to say is, I don't give a shit if people are getting sick. I'm surprised people aren't always getting sick. I once went to a sushi buffet where it was an all-you-eat sushi. This is in a nice country. This isn't in a shithole like America. This is in a nice place. This is a nice... These are good people. These are not Americans. These are like Canadians, you know. This is a nice place. And it's an all-you-can-eat sushi thing, you know. It's very expensive. It's 40, 50 bucks a plate, a person. And... The way that this particular nice all-you-can-eat sushi place went is it had like a little river, and the little river had boats, and so the chefs were kind of like trapped in a little little Japanese chef moat that you could look at them like they were an exhibit in a biopark, just kind of trapped in the middle, and then they were just constantly working and making uh, sushi confections and then putting them on the boats for us to ravenously consume. More! More robbed fish! More! But... The thing of it is, is that once they put the sushi on the boats and the boats would go around, the boats would go around and 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 around until somebody grabbed them. You see. Until somebody picked them up. And the way that it worked, people weren't coming up to the moat. Fuck no! This is a first world country. It's all you can eat sushi. You're not gonna make that clientele walk a step. Walk a step? After they've sat down, walk a step, these fat asses? Are you kidding me? Fuck no. The river runs through the entire restaurant so that everybody can just kind of, just kind of like, just kind of like dip their hand into the sushi river and grab more sushi. Take the boats. You take the boat out the river so they can put more boats in. And then when you're done, you put the empty boat back in the river. That's how it works. Now, a lot of you are thinking, oh, no, he's talking about touching boats. No, I'm not. I'm really not. Because I don't think anybody's getting coronavirus from touching them water boats. Maybe a few people. Not really. No, what I'm talking about is when I looked up, at the, you know, because it's a buffet, so I was in there a while. You know, I was in there seven, eight, nine hours. It's a buffet. I paid once. I'm going to eat until you're out of business. That's how it works, asshole. You made the mistake. All you can eat. Not all I want to eat. Not all that's possible to eat. All that I can. I can do things that aren't possible. Ask my third grade science teacher, asshole. So I'm in there a while, and I do observe... This river runs through it, going around all the different clientele. And at one point, the 75 to 100 people that are constantly in there, I count seven coffers. This is not COVID-19. This is a long time ago. There's no epidemic. I'm not a germaphobe. I don't give a shit. But I'm like, there's a lot of coughing going on. And I look at the people coughing. And some of them are just coughing onto the fucking sushi boats as they're coming. And they're like, oh, they're looking at the sushi. Like, oh, blah, 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 blah. I don't want that one. Blah, blah, blah. I don't want that one. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, that one looks great. Da, da. Seven coffers. Because I counted. I remember this very vividly. And I remember thinking, if you come in here again, 
if you sit down here again, if you if you sit, because I was pretty far away from where they the sushi terrarium was, the chef terrarium, the chef, the island of chef, the island of miss, miss chefs. I'm going to keep going until I fucking nail this joke. I don't know what to say it. The bio, the Japanese quarter, the, I don't know what to fucking call it. <laughs> I realize, like if you, if you come in here, this winding river with all these people, like there's only a matter of time before you get sick, like really sick. Like this is, this is like a pediatrician level of, of algebra calculation of how long is it until I get sick again. If you're a pediatrician, it's not a question of when do, if I get sick, it's when do I, when does one of these little pieces of shit make me sick again? That's it. That's the only calculation for them. Right? This, I've never met a pediatrician you haven't either outside of work, have you? Never. Why? Biohazards. They just seal them up. They don't leave. They just literally have a fucking hazmat suit and a chamber that they seal them in. The end of the fucking day. Don't tell me that there's not. <laughs> so I realized, like, if I come back here, I'm going to get sick. So I'm back in the sushi boat place a couple of weeks later. And I'm sitting at the island. That's the very, very... I'm sitting at the bar. That's, that's enclosing the chefs. And I'm sitting there. And the whole time, because there's like eight chefs who have like eight different canals to put their sushi boats on. And the whole time, I'm just waiting for the two guys in front of me. The two guys literally right in front of me. Right at the start. To put something on a boat and then grab in that fucking boat. Every time. Every time, I'm right there as soon as it comes out of captivity like a kraken that was cap-spawning fucking noobs. Like, like, like Neptune was just pissed off at the Greek sailors that day. As soon as a boat appeared, it was destroyed. Do you understand? From their hands to my mouth, there was less sushi transference than I'd ever gone before. At every other place I'd ever been to, do you hear me? There was a waitress or a bartender, and they would pass it between each other, kissing and spitting on it at the nice sushi place. Take that. And then they would hand me the plate. Here, it was direct contact. Knife, fish, bed of rice, boat. Ma, dirty monster paw, grabbing the boat out the water, down the gullet. Here is my point with this analogy. Ready? Just because the world is full of germy-ass motherfucking people doesn't mean you can't change your position in it so that not only do you not get sick, but you can get what you want. That's the rest of 2020. Keep in mind... <laughs> that in mind, all right? We're going to make it through. It's going to be okay. We can't change the behaviors of others, but we can be aware of the behaviors of others, and we can change ours so that we're still living life, we're still getting what we want, and we hopefully don't get sick because we've made good choices. That's all I want to encourage you. It's a little story just about living in the fucking world, but I do mean that sincerely. I don't think I've ever had a sushi waitress, just to be clear. It's always a waitress. I've never had a sushi waiter once, ever. Ever. Do they not allow them? I've never had a sushi waiter, ever. 
Only waitresses. I've never had a host? Ever? I've never walked into a restaurant and had a host. Only a hostess. Just saying. Never seen it. Never seen a host. I've seen a montre de. I've seen a montre de. But I've never, ever. <laughs> Somebody just said that the waiter had on real tight pants. And I'm just giggling so much that that's the detail. I saw a male sushi waiter. He had tightest pants I ever saw. Black as the night. <laughs> I just love it. Of all the details. I saw a sushi waiter once. He had a bolo tie on. Turquoise and silver. <laughs> okay, apparently they exist. Oh, two people have said it, and they both gave a detail like a murder just happened, like I'm fucking Columbo. I saw it. I saw it. He had a lip, and one ear was bigger than the other, like he was in a fight with a kid. <laughs> so I've personally never had a sushi waiter. Or a host. I've never met either. Always hostess, always waitress. And I don't think they've ever... <laughs> I don't think they've ever actually coughed or anything else on the sushi. Because it's sushi. You pay an extra 5 to $10 just to go there. So, like, it's a pretty good place to get tips. It's a sushi restaurant. Sometimes they just open up the wallet at the beginning and take a 20 out. Just here. You, hey, you're going to order two beers? This is two beers here, okay? Just shut up. Shut up. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Make a scene in front of your date? Come on. Sushi. Get real. Just throw the wallet back in your face. So I think the people who work at those restaurants are, generally speaking, like, really high class. However, I do have a point, don't I? Do I not? About how I got the boats and there was no hand-to-hand -hand contact? Because I've been thinking about that. I really have. That's a real true story. And I really, truly want you to do that. Now, let me talk about the opposite, about me being a giant freak. It's 1.30 in the morning, I'm in a gym, there's one other guy there, he's wearing an N95 mask, and we're circling each other slowly, like it's Jets and the Sharks, Champion Edition. Well, we can't fight with the full Jets and Sharks. We'd breathe on each other. Social distancing. <laughs> so the way that the fights work now is we send out one jet and one shark every few hours and they da 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 we got to go a lot slower we found out da 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 there's a lot more jazz hands in the apocalypse than I thought at the beginning. There's a lot more hand signals and jazz hands in the apocalypse than I thought there was going to be. I was waiting in line to buy weed. Everybody had to stand six feet apart. I was like the guy in front of me. I'm like, excuse me, is this the line to buy weed? He turns around. He's just like... <laughs> You know, like, it's just, it's just a little, it's like, huh, I didn't expect that. In my state, all schools were just canceled. There was no talk about it or anything before. The governor just kind of grabbed the mic today and was like, hey, there's no more schools anymore till next month. Not like universities or like colleges or something like that. Just school where kids go. Just, just today. It's just like, that just happened. And 
the technically the kids were in class today. Technically speaking, uh, that was still going on, right? But the school bell didn't ring because nobody sent their kids to school today. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's an extra month off. It's an extra. It's an extra summer break. Practically, it's going to take them practically up to summer break, and. I just got to say, if you think your life is difficult or being upended, the governor had to apologize for canceling all schools because of all the kids who were going to go hungry. <laughs> like, you think your life's fucking complicated? Imagine making that example. Imagine having to suddenly cancel school and be like, and I know a lot of you are reliant on us feeding your kids. So sorry for that. And that's the kind of life that other people are living right now. So whenever I get scared about Gas Mask Bill and his sniper rifle to buy weed, I just remind myself that other people out there are, like, really scrambling. Like, whenever I think, ooh, this is a confusing time for me, I'm like, oh, right, this is the most confusing time for everybody ever. <laughs> What's God's plan for me? And then God's just like, like immediately trying to min max a hundred billion other people's prayers. God's got no plan for me. He's got other people to look out for right now. I'm on my own. And I'm going to sushi boat my way to victory. So I'm going around the goddamn gym. And I know, I know. That you cannot get this disease through sweat. I know you can't. <laughs> That's scientifically proven. It's stated. There's no coronavirus via sweat transfer. It's or beta coronavirus via sweat transfer. It's well established. I got this. Viral walls, yada, yada, yada. So I'm wiping down the fucking shit out of everything that's ever existed in the fucking gym before and after I touch it. Like it's goddamn biohazard level three sign. And I'm doing this for like, I don't know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And I, I both have my headphones on plugged into my phone and my Spotify and the gym music, even at 2.30 in the morning, is still going over the loudspeakers. So I'm in my zone. I'm working out. And it's 2.30 or so. It's between 1.30 and 2.30. When this, I wake up in the middle of the night, I head to the gym. I don't check the clock. It's dark. So that's what I do. I wake up. I go to the gym. I come home so I can smoke weed. Just being real with you guys. This is this is this is how Daddy has chosen to live his life instead of having relationships or friends or a family or something meaningful. This is what I choose to do with my goddamn life. And so I'm really involved in this workout, and I'm not really paying attention to anything. I never see anybody at the gym in these hours. And I look up. And I realize there's another motherfucker in the gym who's just kind of like snuck in. This is a small, small 24-hour hole-in-the-wall hole gym, which is why I chose it. And he's wanting to work out on the same circuit that I am, <laughs> clearly. Because <laughs> we kind of look the same body type. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be rude, but like... <laughs> 
if if you look like this, you know what machines you'd use to look, you know what weights you hit. And we and I do not want to hit the barbells at all. I don't want to hit the barbells at all. Besides the front desk and the front door, the barbells have to be the most touched thing in the fucking gym, right? They have to be. I've just made my decision. That's it. It's got to be barbells, so I'm using machines. Women are less likely to get this than men. Women use machines. I'm going to use this, okay? So, I realize that he's working out and he wants to do the same fucking circuit. And he's in an N95 mask, which means he's either contagious and at the gym, or he's a goddamn motherfucker who's just like a prepper at the gym. He's one of the fucking two, though. He's one of the fucking two. And so for the rest of the fucking gym visit, me and the only other fucking person in the gym, I've not only got to count my reps, I've not only got to fucking... Like, count my machine. I also have to look at what machine this guy's touched, because guess what I'm not doing again now? But here's the great thing. After keeping this new set of numbers in my head of what machine do I only get to do one set of, because <laughs> we're both wiping down before and after like motherfuckers, I have to cross at the end from the floor of the machines, the chest, ma the chest machines. It was, a, it was a chest day the chest machines, to the cardio section. The totally empty cardio bank. That's in its own kind of enclosed room to make sure that everybody breathing heavy can spread it as fast as possible. They made sure the cardio area was in its own... Because before, I was in the own little enclosed area like, oh, great, they made the cardio area closed so there's no airflow so that the ass crack sweat can flow freely. Whee! We did it! We made the perfect gym! But now I'm like, oh, great. It's literally this enclosed room with this one giant five-blade fan that looks like it's from fucking Blade Runner designed to cyclone germs into your fucking eyes and orify as quickly and effectively as possible. So I'm alone in the cardio bank, and I'm going to love it. I didn't get a cardio workout last time I was there because there were people, and that wasn't going to happen. And I'm crossing, letting him have the whole gym effectively. And I'm crossing from the machines in towards the cardio bank. And this is where I realize that this dude is fucking terrified of me. <laughs> because he's mid-fucking, like, like, pumping his pecs. He's just blasting his fucking pecs. And just because I walk within nine feet... I don't go down the same aisle of machines as him. I don't go down the same aisle next to the machines as him. I go down an aisle next to, next to the machines that he's on. And he sees me out the corner of his eye mid-peck blast, and he, I don't know how to describe this quite on the microphone, so here's the sound, ready? Here's, here's, of him jumping back, and like, ah! So that answered my question on who has an N95 mask at the gym. It's not the contagious. <laughs> it's not the contagious. <laughs> uh. 
I, I will say real quick before I get into reading your poetry and all that stuff, pay me. But besides that, uh, getting into the uh, the fan request and all that before getting, reading into it. Everybody, apparently, that you call out for having an N95 mask is apparently going to say one of two things. I think I have it, or I'm compromised. The thing is, about number two, I don't believe you. I don't believe that there's a lot of immunocompromised people walking around with a mask right now in public because I think they're actually terrified. I'm not immunocompromised. I don't have any immunocompromised people in my life. But I think that they are. Like, obviously, this is an American statement and that there's different countries and different protocol. However, in America, our protocol is don't wear a fucking mask. We need those for other people. So don't wear one. And I've been thinking about it a lot because I've seen so many internet comments about how, like, if somebody's wearing a mask, you're like, hey, don't wear those. People say, and, and this is not believed, I'm contagious or I'm immunocompromised, right? And I just, like, I'm so tempted in this new Bane universe that we're in. We're, we're in this, in this world where the cops are never going to show up for anything, <laughs> frankly, sorry to say, <laughs> the cops ain't coming because <laughs> they've, they've got bigger shit to do. In this new world, like, I'm just so tempted to become the vigilante that I was always born to be about these masks and like just like straight up like walk up to people and be like oh i see you're wearing a mask and be like yeah yeah and they'll say i'm either contagious or i'm immunocompromised and then i'll just rip that motherfucker off the face and be like me too put it on and walk away i'm not afraid of this fucking disease Take your fucking mask off your fucking face. What are you going to do? I'm dead serious. You take the fucking mask off a person who's a freak, they're just going to run screaming back to their car or their house. What are they going to do? You've destroyed them. It's like Buzz Lightyear when Woody takes his helmet off in the first Toy Story. He's going to go insane. They can't. They need the mask. The mask is what gives them the illusion of control. I'm going to take it off them. I'm the Joker from the Dark Knight. Okay. Darth Vader needs his mask. He needs all his buttons. Should we get into what Darth Vader's buttons do? The stupid four buttons on the front of Darth Vader's fucking chest piece? Because I had a cardboard cutout just before I read everything. I had a cardboard, life-size cardboard cutout of Darth Vader... And I loved him because he was so cool, but he has got four stupid buttons, like three red and one blue button on the front of his chest piece that looks so dumb. No matter how much you love Star Wars, if you look at those buttons, you're like, God, those buttons look dumb. They look like 60s buttons, even though the movie's from the 70s. They're so out of place. The chest place. Big, bright buttons. <laughs> well, apparently in the EU, of course, the extended universe... They say what the buttons do. And, like, Darth Vader's power suit and his, like, TIE fighter are all, like, cool and, like, super advanced. And, like, it's, like, worked into all these stories and comic books about, like, how cool his fighter is because it has a warp drive. And, like, how cool his suit and armor is. How cool his lightsaber is. 
So when they took the time to talk about how, like, awesome Darth Vader's fucking kid is, apparently what they decided to say about the buttons on the front of his fucking jack shit is that they were torture devices. They don't do anything besides torture Darth Vader. That's right. You can look it up yourself. The buttons on the suit don't do anything for the suit. That would be dumb, because then other people could use their force powers to touch the buttons. Could you imagine if Luke Skywalker could... Like, if the red button was a power button, if Luke Skywalker just, like, pressed the power button on the suit with his mind, just like, deep, and Return of the Jedi, just the deep with his mind, and then Darth Vader just, powers down. That's it. So the red power button isn't a power button on the front. They don't power the suit. They don't have any function. None of that. No, the suit's got to stay powered no matter what. The stormtroopers are also in powered armor. There's no fucking button on those, boys. Okay? Power armor doesn't need the buttons. So the buttons are special. And the way they came up with it is it's just Palpatine presses the buttons with his mind to torture Darth Vader. So, like, the red button is like an electric shock, and, like, the blue button, like, takes the oxygen out, but, like, Jedis can breathe without oxygen, so it's just really painful. Ooh, yeah, you get no oxygen now. You've been a bad Vader. No, no breathing for you. You get to breathe tomorrow, Vader. So here's the crazy fucking thing that I never knew until I looked up the buttons on Wiki. This is true. The buttons change. You have to watch, but the buttons are different in every episode. Episode 3, 4, 5, and 6, the buttons have the same layout, but then there's different sub-buttons and different colors. So it's always four giant stupid fucking buttons, but the buttons have different colors and then different sub-layouts. So after somebody pointed out, some fucking nerd who noticed this shit that nobody ever noticed... Because they probably didn't even mean to do it. In the, they probably just had to make a new chest fucking button thing every time back then because movie props were bullshit back in the 80s. Like, oh, fuck, we're making another one of these? Okay, well, what's it look like? I don't know. Just take this, and then they just would make a new chest piece every time. So the buttons were different colors, and they had different sub-patterns. And so the explanation is, well, Palpatine had to change the torture up. Palpatine, Palps had to, like... After Return of the Jedi, after, like, Empire Strikes Back, Palps is all like, just fucking sucked on Hoth. Let's give you a freeze button. How do you like that, Scarecrow? How about a little freeze, Scarecrow? Says Palpatine. And then he presses the blue button. And Darth Vader's all like, Brr, now I'm sad about Padme and Cold. Don't, don't, don't learn more about Darth Vader. Just watch episodes four through six of Star Wars and then nothing else. Don't, don't, don't find out anything else about Darth Vader. It's all just sad. <laughs> There's nothing good there. Ah. <laughs> uh. Did people want to do quick quotes tonight, or did people want to stop that fucking bit? You gotta tell me. I've been freewheeling for so long now. I don't even know what I'm doing anymore, what the show is. I'm here for you. Whatever you guys want.
All right, if you guys want quick quotes, then get them ready. Don't put them up yet. I'm going to read poetry. There's a lot of poetry tonight, so you've got plenty of time to come up with one. Come up with a quick quote, and if you want me to say it, you're here live. I'll be happy to say it for you. Yes? Okay. That's the deal. Let's see if you can abide it. Or since I just said Darth Vader shit, I have altered the deal. Pray that I do not alter it further. Also, can I can I can I say something? Last I gotta say, I came up against this quote uh like a lot the last decade. I thought this was a quote from a from a movie like in the 30s or 40s or something. I'm just gonna say the quote and I'm gonna say what movie it's from. So you tell me, people who are alive, have you heard this quote? <clears throat> Do you think God stays in heaven because he too fears what he's created? Have you heard that quote? <laughs> it's from Spy Kids too. <laughs> That quote is fucking amazing. I have heard it used unironically. It's first quotation is Sky Kids, Spy Kids 2. <laughs> Just in the middle of that guy. The, the same thing that has I'm the Dipper. The Dipper. Bill Paxton, The Dipper, that same, that same fucking franchise has a quote that Mary Shelley wishes she could have come up with. Do you understand how much Mary Shelley wishes the monster had said that fucking line in Frankenstein? Do you? Do you? Could you imagine if that's what the fucking monster said instead of this bullshit that he says at the end? Because here's the actual thing that the monster says in Frankenstein, ready? Maybe you're the monster. That's it. That's it. Maybe you're the monster, doctor. That's, that's the, that's the, that's the end of Frankenstein. <laughs> Do you know how much better it would be if the monster said that before rowing away? Oh, shit, the monster had a point. <laughs> I can't get over that. I'm never going to stop laughing. Sky Kids 2... Spy, Sky Kids. Spy Kids 2, the best fucking quote about God in the 21st century. Think on that. Think on it for a bit. <laughs> Here we go. <clears throat> Take more bread away from me. If you wish, take air, but do not take away from me your laughter. Do not take away the rose, the lance flower that you pick, the water that suddenly bursts forth in joy, the sudden wave of silver born in you. My struggle is harsh, and I come back with eyes tired at times from having seen the unchanging earth. But when your laughter enters, it rises to the sky seeking me and it opens for me all the doors of life. My love, in the darkness your hour of laughter opens, and if suddenly you see my blood staining, the stones of the street laugh 
because your laughter will be on my hands like a fresh sword. Next to the sea in the autumn, your laughter may raise its foamy cascade, and in the spring, love, I want your laughter like the flower I was waiting for, the blue flower, the rose of my echoing country. Laugh at the night, at the day, at the moon. Laugh at the twisted streets of the island. Laugh at this clumsy boy who loves you. But when I open my eyes and close them, when my steps go, when my steps return, deny me bread, air, light, spring, but never your laughter, for I would die. Your Laughter, Pablo Neruda. <clears throat> My childhood's home I see again and sin with the view, and still, as memory crowds my brain, there's pleasure in it too. O memory, thou midway world, twixt earth and paradise, where things decayed and loved ones lost in dreamy, Shadows rise, and, freed from all the earthly vile, seem hallowed, pure and bright, like scenes in some enchanted isle, all bathed in liquid light. Ah, dusky mountains, please the eye, when twilight chases day, as bugle notes that passing by, in distance, die away. Ah, leaving as some grand waterfall we lingering list to roar, so memory will hallow all we've known, but no, no more. Near twenty years have passed away since here I bid farewell to woods and fields and scenes of play and playmates loved so well. Where many were, but few remain of old familiar things, but seeing them to mind again to lost of absent brings. To friends I left that parting day, how changed as time has sped, young childhood grown, strong manhood gray, and half of all are dead. I love and love survivors tell how naught from dead could save, till every sound appear anew, and every spot a grave. Arrange the fields with pensive tread, and pace the hollow rooms, and feel companion of the dead. I'm living in the tombs. Memory by Abraham Lincoln I didn't know he was a poet. <clears throat> Amidst the flowers a jug of wine I pour alone, lacking companionship. So, raising the cup, I invite the moon. Then, turn to my shadow, which makes three of us. Because the moon does not know how to drink, my shadow merely follows my movement of my body. My moon brought the shadow to keep me company a while. The practice of mirth should keep pace with the spring. I start a song, and the moon begins to reel. I rise and dance to the shadows and move grotesquely. While I'm still conscious, let's rejoice with one another. After I'm junk, let's leech go on his way. Let us bind ourselves for each passionless joyering. Let us swear to meet again, far in the Milky Way. Amidst a Jug of Wine by Lee Poe. L-I-P-O. Lee Poe. <clears throat> See, Lee Poe knows it. You're never drinking alone if you drink with your shadow. Peter Pan knew it too. 
<clears throat> I love you as a sheriff searches for a walnut that will solve a murder case and solve for years because the murderer left it in the snow beside a window through which he saw her head connected with her shoulder by a neck and laid a red roof in her heart. For this we live a thousand years. For this we love, and we live because we love. We are not inside a bottle, thank goodness. I love you as a kid searches for a ghost. I am crazier than the shirt tails in the wind when you are near, a wind that blows from the big blue sea, so shiny, so deep, so unlike us. I think I am bicycling across Africa of green and white fields, always to be near you, even in my heart, when I am awake which swims, and also I believe that you are trustworthy as the sidewalk which leads me to this place where I again think of you. New harmony of thoughts. I love you as sunlight leads the prow of a ship which sails from Hartford to Miami, and I love you best at dawn, when even before I am awake the sun receives me the questions which you always pose. To You by Kenneth Koch, K-O-C-H. I gotta say, that, please, if you, if, if, if you, people like my commentary, so please, if you suggested that one, don't think that, that you did anything wrong. That was a strange one to me. <laughs> I don't understand poems like that. I, I don't get it. The sheriff's searching for a walnut, and then she's dead, and then there's ships, and then you're together. I don't understand what happened in that poem at all. <laughs> I wanted to, I was like, okay, how's this going to go back to the walnut? The sh you love me like a sheriff searching for a walnut that's going to solve the murder. That seems important. No, it's not? Okay. That's the whole metaphor? You love me like a, worth, like a sheriff who's searching for a walnut that's going to solve a murder. Okay. I don't know what to do with that, Ken. <laughs> I, can, you, can you love me like a girlfriend that you're not going to cheat on? Is that what that means? <laughs> there was a lass called Bonnie Bet with a jolly fat arse and a cut black as jet. We're going to save that poem for last. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and get the other poems out the way. Cause I don't want to be giggling through other poems, so we're gonna we're gonna save that one for the end <clears throat> of poetry. There we go. When you hear when you hear me saying that a girl's uh, cunt is black as jet, it's time for quick quotes. Get your quick quotes ready. Start putting your st start, try not to laugh and put your stuff in quick quotes and tell me to say that your hair is pretty and that you did a good job this week when I'm talking about uh, this gal's cunt. Yeah. Okay. Great. Cool. <clears throat> <clears throat> her body is not so white as a minimi petals, or so smooth, no so remote thing. It is a field of wild carrot taking the field by force. The grass does not raise above it. 
Here is no question of whiteness white as can be, with a purple mole at the center of each flower. Each flower is a hand span of her whiteness. Wherever his hand was lain there is a tiny purple blossom under his touch, to which the fibers of her being stem one by one each to its end, until the whole field is a white desire, empty, a single stem, a cluster, flower by flower, pious wish to whiteness gone over, or nothing. Queen Anne's Lace William Carlos Williams That was beautiful. I don't know if you've ever seen carrot flowers, but that was gorgeous. That's pretty much exactly what it looks like when wildflowers that pop up from roots take over a field. It's very strange to see from the outside. <clears throat> I wanted to make myself like the ravine so that all good things would flow into me. Because the ravine is lowly, it receives an abundance. This sounds wonderful to everyone who receives from lacking, but consider too, a ravine keeps nothing out. It flows in a peach with only one bite taken out of it. It flows to the body of a stiff mouse, house cooked by the heat of a stove that it was toughening under. I have an easy-going way about me. I've been an inviting host, meaning to, not meaning to. Oops. He's approaching with his tongue already out, moving. Analyze the risks of becoming a ravine. Compare those with risks of becoming a well with a well-bolted lid, which I prefer depends largely on which kinds of animals were inside me when the lid went on and how likely they'd be to enjoy the water versus drown, or freeze, or starve. The lesson, close yourself off at exactly the right time. On the day that you wake up under some yellow curtains with a smile on your face, lock the door, live out your days untroubled like that. That was beautiful. I wanted to make you, myself like the ravine. By Hannah Gamble, G-A-M-B-L-E, just like the verb. <clears throat> Somewhere I have never traveled, gladly beyond any experience, your eyes have their silence. In your most frail gesture are things which enclose me, of which I cannot touch, because they are too near. Your slightest look easily will enclose me, though I have closed myself as fingers. You open away petal by petal, myself by spring opens, touching skillfully, mysteriously, her first rose, or if you wish to be close to me, I and my life will shut very beautifully, suddenly, as when your heart of this flower imagines the snow carefully, everywhere descending. Nothing which we are to perceive in this world equals the power of your intense fragility whose texture compels me with the color of its countries, rendering death forever with each breath. I do not know what it is about this that closes only, opens something in me and understands your voice of your eyes is deeper than all roses. Nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. Somewhere I have never traveled 
gladly beyond by E.E. E. Cummings. Trump has more romance. <clears throat> there is not in this wild world of valleys so sweet as the vale where the thighs of the pretty girls meet. Here we go. <clears throat> Oh, the last ray of feeling of life must depart, ere the bloom of that valley shall fade from my heart. Yet it is not nature that shed over the scene the purest of red of the most delicate skein. Tis not the sweet smell of the genial hill. Ah, oh, no, it is something more exquisite still. "'Tis because the last flavors of women are there, "'which make a part of her body more dear. "'We feel how the charms of nature improve "'when we bathe in the spinnings of whom we love.'" <sighs> Anybody know who Felicia Day is? Felicia Day is a nerd. She had a show where there was an MMO and she played in the MMO and there was an Indian guy on the MMO that was making fun of WoW. And the Indian guy had his own show spinoff, or he didn't really, but he was on a spinoff with Felicia Day called The Legend of like Zed or something like that. The Legend of Ted, The Legend of Jake, something like that. And the premise of The Legend of Jake is a, a loser gets drunk playing The Legend of Zelda for NES and he gets teleported inside the game. I promise this is going to connect. I know it doesn't sound like it. So inside this version of Legend of Zelda, it's really like rude and crude. It's super early internet humor. So like the old man gives like Link his sword and Link can shoot lightning bolts out of it and the old man's all like how's that for fucking craftsmanship I've got craftsmanship up my fucking balls how about that Link right like it's a very rude show like everybody's just very rude to Link and like every like the like every like everybody's very it's South Park but even cruder and ruder okay and on this version of Legend of Zelda the fairy is played by Felicia Day the fairy from Legend of Zelda that you use to heal and you put in bottles and all that. It's Felicia Day, and she's dressed like the fairy from Legend of Zelda. And she sings a song. She sings a song about how great it is to fuck giant dicks. Because she's a tiny fairy. She's a tiny little three-inch fairy. And it's about how much she loves giant fucking man dick. And so it's Felicia Day. And, like, somebody singing a love song to her, a human being is, like, singing this love song because she's so beautiful and she heals him. And he's like, you heal me. And she's like, you fill me with your seed. And it goes on for about 90 seconds. And what I remember most of all is that the guy is, like, singing this love story about how much he loves to cover her in his love. And she sings about how much she loves to be covered in swimming until she's covered in swimming in his cum. And then she makes, like, a little, like, she's breaching water, like she's a swimmer coming up, and she does, like, a little gargling motion, like she's come out, and she's, like, shimmying, and it's incredibly incredibly super gross. It's supposed to be super gross and super over the top. 
And especially since the guy's like, I love you, I love you. And it's Felicia Day and she's singing this horrible shit. I cackled, I spittled, I choked and I cried. And I haven't thought about that shit in over a decade because of how gross and disgusting it is. <laughs> Until I read this poem. Because this is the exact, this poem is the exact same thing. This poem is literally just 12 lines of, I love your pussy juice. Oh, you're so good, pussy juice. It's so fucking good. And I know I do that. Okay? I know. I've got several audios where I do that. Okay? So I know that I'm in the glass house. Watch me throw the stone anyway. It's worth it to me. Breaking his window is worth breaking mine. Okay? You hear me? I made the calculation. <laughs> what the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> Something about poetry makes it so much worse, though. Something about, like, how? How do I talk about licking this woman's pussy in such a way that I can elevate it? And then choosing to make it that form of media. I don't know. One more thing, because I haven't thought about it in such a long time. There was this uh, show on HBO called Real Sex, and it would actually be real sex. It would be it, would, it was like a documentary series, and we'd find really extreme people, but they were real people having real sex. And one of them was an exhibit in which this very attractive woman was put in a box, just put in a box that nobody could see into, and it had a lot of holes, and then you could just come by and stick your hand in a hole and feel her up. Uh... And how much she loved it. It was this is not like a BDSM thing. She loved it. She was super into it. And she was super attractive and in great shape. You couldn't see that. You just have to reach in and feel it. This was all for her. This was her way of being an exhibitionist without, without putting herself on the line, essentially. And she would get filled up for, you know, hours and hours and hours at these different things that she would go to. This was her thing, and she loved it. And I think about, like, people like that who are on the sexual extreme. I think about people who are like really interesting and artistic about it and how they're like, gosh, I just want to meet somebody who has such an open mind about sex and they want to get a guy and he has an open mind about sex and, you know, because he's got to understand I have this kink and it's just touching. It's just petting and it's not cheating. And you have to think about that. I have to find an open guy about sex because I don't even know if this is written by a dude. <laughs> Could be written by a woman, but I think it's by a dude. And she's like, you know, on her like, you know, fet life or whatever. She's trying to get her her dick in and her love in, trying to live her life. She's an office manager, or whatever. You know, she's got her nine to five shit going on too. She's just got her, you know, porn box. And she's like, I'm just trying to find a guy who will understand that I like my porn box and I go on tour with it. Where can I find a guy who's open? And then, like, every guy who describes himself as open sexually is open enough to be cool with her doing that is definitely at least writing about her pussy. And I quote, There is not in this world wide valley so sweet as the veil where the thighs of a pretty girl meet. Oh, that last ray of feeling in life must depart ere the bloom of that valley shall fade from my heart. Yet it is not nature that is shed over the scene. The purest of red. Ooh, oh, the most delicate skin. Ooh, oh, tis not the uh, sweet smell of that 
genial hill. Oh, it is something more exquisite still. Ah, tis because the last oof flavors of a woman are there, which makes every part of her body more dear. Oh, we feel how the charms of nature improve when we bathe in the spendings of the one we love. When we bathe in the spendings of one we love. That means getting cum all over you after oral sex. No question. Pay me. Pay me. Pay me now, damn you. Do you know how many, do you know how many guys, do you know how many guys would read that poem and be like, oh, this is hot. If I read this to a woman, she's going to know I'm talking about eating pussy. And she's going to get hot. Some guys read that poem and then brought that in as plan A. Plan A. That was some dude's plan A. That was the best that dude came up with that day. Haven't they moved like rivers, like glory, like light, over the seven days of your body? And wasn't that good, them at your hips? Isn't that what God felt when he pressed together the first beloved? Everything. Fever, vapor, atmin, pulses. Finally, a sin worth hunting for. Finally, a sweet. You are mine. It is hard not to have faith in this, in the blue-brown clay of night and the two potters crushed that smoothed you into being grind. The curve built in your form up, atlas of bone, fields of muscle, bone, breast of fig tree, the other a nightingale, both morning and evening. Oh, beautiful making they do, the trigger and carve, suffering and starves, aren't they too the dark carpenters of your small church? Have they not burned the altar of your belly, eaten the bread of your thighs, broken you to wine, to ichor, to notarious feast? Aren't they riveted your wrists? Haven't they had you at the knee? And when these hands touched your throat, showed you how to take the apple of your rib, how to slip the thumb into your mouth and taste it all, didn't you sing out their ninety-nine names? Zaphir, Aleph, Hands times seven, Sphinx, Leonidas, Locomotor, Rimbidum, August and September, and when you cried out, O Prometheans, didn't they bring you fire? These hands, if not gods, then why have they come to me? And I have returned to you from which that form you came, bright, mud, mineral, salt. Why then do you whisper, O my Hecton, oof, my Hecatonshire, oof, I don't know that name, my Sentimane, my hundred-handed one. This is the third time someone's asked me to read that poem, and I legitimately think it's just to be a dick every time.
I legitimately think someone's just like, I don't like that poem. I just know that nobody knows how to read all those names out loud, so it's fun for me to read. Every time, if you're the one who requested it, I don't know who you are, but literally every time I get through that, I'm like, nobody actually wants to hear that poem. They want to hear people mess up. Well, you did. Now pay me. Congrats. You did it. You chose a poem that you know nobody can recite. Good for you. It happens every year. I sit here on the second floor, hunched over in yellow pajamas, still pretending to be a writer. Some damned gall at 71, my brain cells eaten away by life, rows of books behind me. I scratch my thinning hair and search for the word. Now, by Charles Bukowski. That's the best thing I've ever read by him. I'm not a Bukowski fan. That was good. I saw a star slide down the sky, blinding the north as it went by. Too burning and too quick to hold, too lovely to be brought or sold, only good to make wishes on, and then forever to be gone. The Falling Star, Sarah Teasdale. Okay, here we go. Let's try and get through this shit. This is the last poem. Everybody, get your quick quotes ready. Stop clapping, stop thanking, stop tipping, and get those quotes in between those question marks. As Daddy tries to get through this poem, it's going to be an interesting one. Here we are. There was a lass they called Bonnie Bet, who's jolly fat arse and a cunt black as jet. Her quim had long itched, and she wanted, I vow, a jolly good fucking, but couldn't tell how. Derry down. She thought of a plan that might serve as the same, that herself she might shag without any shame. So a carrot she got, with a point rather blunt, and she rammed and jammed it three parts up her cunt. Derry down. She liked it so well that she oft used to do it till the length the poor girl had occasion to rue it. For one day, when amused herself on a whim, the carrot had snapped, and part stuck in a quim. Derry down. She went almost mad with vexation at this. Indeed, it was time the poor girl couldn't piss. The lass was in torture, no rest had poor bed, so she sat down an old doctor she was forced to get. Derry down. The doctor had came, and she told him the case, and then with spectacles on, he had a long face. He bid her to turn up, though scarcely was able, and pull up her petticoats over the navel. Derry down. Her clout she held up, round her belly so plump, and she gave her fat ass a hell of a thump, and that made her cry out, though he did it so neat, and away through the carriage, bang, into the street. Derry down. Now a sweet passing by, saw it coming on down, picked it up and he ate it, and he said with a frown, By God, it's not right, and it's a damn shame, I say, that people should throw buttered carrots away. Derry down. (laughs) Well, I got through it. I hope, I hope at home that somebody enjoyed that. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's time for quick quotes for all the girls who are here live. If you come to a live show, you put it in crew quotation marks. I'll be happy to say it. We especially love new girls, brave new girls who have never asked me to say anything before. I love to say your name. I love to say something to encourage you. Just my little way of saying thank you so much for coming out. I know that there's a lot of places that you could be. The fact that you're a fan of mine, the fact that you come to one of my shows, it means a lot. It really does. So, here we go. <clears throat> Bend over. Good girl. Your daddy's very good girl. Baby, look at you. You're doing so good. And I'm so proud of you. Sleep with the angels. Then come back to earth and sleep with your devil. It would burn in hell for one night in your arms. You're such a good girl, Sierra. This week has been hard, but you survived, and I am so proud of you for accomplishing everything you did. This week was hard, but you made it through. I'm proud of you. Baby girl, I know it's hard right now. Just remember, tomorrow is another day. Come here, little girl, and daddy is going to fuck that stress away. Eyes on me, princess. I know it's been rough, Jasmine, but we're doing this. No matter how much you protest, it's all going to be worth it tomorrow. I promise. Yeah? Oh, goodness, that's all the girls wanted me to say. No new girls, no brave girls, nobody has anything else. <gasps> oh. And I thought that I was of such use to you all. I thought that I was of such value and comfort. Won't you come out to the next live show and supply me with more things to say? It would mean a lot. If I just did that all the time, if I just put on that persona, would I be more famous? If just all the time, if I was just like, hello, I'm the Grey Knight, and I'm so sexy, and this is me. Mm. Today, I was thinking about the epidemic, and then I put it out of my mind, because my penis is so big. Today, I was thinking about how stressful everyone is, and how I just want to give you a massage. Aren't you so stressed? Mm. Let's put it out of your head, and just massage you, gently. That's what you deserve, right, princess? Just nothing but that, 24-7. Just all the time. There's this... I'm jealous of him. Just let's, just let's just get that out of the way before we move into love letters. I am jealous of the guy I'm about to describe. There was this guy on Tumblr. He's not there anymore, but he was like... I want to say Brazilian. He was definitely from South America somewhere. And he was gorgeous. And he had a banging body, and his tumbler was, like, super smoking. He would get, like, 10 to fucking 50,000 notes a day every day. And every day, it was just him posting the same picture 
I mean, it was a different picture, but it was the same picture. You know what I'm talking about. It was the di- same picture every day, but a different picture. And then he would have just a little caption. Every day he would just respond to a gal in a Tumblr ask with him shirtless in the mirror at the perfect angle. And then he would type like one response, like a one sentence response. And that's all he did. And he was so, and every sentence was just all like, sounds good, baby. That's it. And it was just because it was his shirtless body because he took that picture that day. It did so, like everyone was like, oh my God, I would fly to Rio de Janeiro just to strip myself. He'd be like, I'd kiss you back. That's all it took. That's all it took. And I'm like, I'm so jealous of that fucker. I'm like, but does it work? Could I just do that? Like, no matter what somebody sends in, it's all like, I want you to smash my face with your ass. It's like, yum. Yum, 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 baby. Like, no matter what, if I just, if if that's what I just responded all the time, it's like, daddy, I'm so scared of getting sick and the government's stopping. It's all like, I'm scared. I'm too buff. And would hurt with my giant dick. <laughs> is that all it takes? I'm starting to wonder. Tony Robbins is successful because he kept going, I'm successful. So, like, is that all it takes? <laughs> all right. Well, then make me more famous. Spread the word on social media at Real Grey Knight at R E A L G R E Y K N I G H T. Like it and retweet it to your followers, even if you don't have any. And follow on social media. Tell you your friends. They're horny. They're stuck inside. I have a nice voice and I'm funny. Okay. <clears throat> I love your verses with all my heart, dear Miss Barrett. And this is no offhand complimentary letter that I shall write, no prompt matter, of course, recognition of your genius, and there is a graceful nature. End of these things. When I first read your poems, I quite laughed to remember how I've been tracing and turning again in my mind what I should be able to tell you of their effect upon me. For in the first flush of delight, I thought I would get this once out of my habit purely passive enjoyment. When I do really enjoy and thoroughly justify my admiration, perhaps even as a loyal fellow craftsman should, try and find fault, and you do some little good to be proud of hereafter, but nothing comes of it. With the heart is full, it may run over, and the real fullness stays within. You asked me yesterday if I should repent. Yes. I could with all the past do so over again, that it may somewhat more, never ever little more, conform in the outward homage of the inward feelings. What I have professed seems to fall short of what I first love required, even when I think of this moment's love. I could repent, as I say. Words can never tell you, however, from the transform them anyway, how perfectly dear you are to me, perfectly dear to my heart and soul. I look back, and in every one point, every word, every gesture, every letter, every silence, you have been entirely perfect to me. I would not change one word, one look. My hope and aim are to preserve this love, not to fall from it. 
Enough now, my dearest. You have given me the highest, completest proof of love that ever one human being has given another. I am gratitude and all pride, all pride that my life has been crowned by you. Would I, if I could, supplant one of any of the affections that I know have taken root in you that against in solemn one, for instance? I feel that if I could get myself remade, as if turned to gold, I would not even make the desire to become more than mere setting to the diamond. You must always wear. The regard and esteem you now give me in this letter, which I press to my heart and bow my head upon, is all I can take, and using all my gratitude. Your very own R. <clears throat> Love letter from Robert Browning to Elizabeth Barrett Browning. <clears throat> Dearest, my body is simply crazy with wanting you. I don't see how I can wait for you. I wonder if your body wants mine in the way mine wants yours, the kisses, the hotness, the wetness all melting together, the being held so tight, it hurts. How I wanted to photograph you, the hands, the mouth, the eyes, the enveloped and black body, the touch of white in the throat, how much we have in common, traits, both turning everything we love into something really living and amusing for ourselves. Both can laugh, really laugh, even at our heartaches. Three hundred years you want to live, I wish I could give you that gift. You will be here a few minutes, but I have to get up to write you. It's necessary. I must. You have been lying here listening for you in the dark. Your face feels hot, aching for the way you down to my finger ends. An actual physical ache. As I came from the street into the sunset after support, I wondered, can I stand it? The terrible fineness and beauty of the intensity of you. I do not know. It seems almost too much. And lying here, wanting you with such an all-out ache, just not wanting, loving, feeling, all the parts of my body touched and kissed are conscious of you. A volcano is nothing to it. Feeling it grow, I seem to feel that moment will come where I can't control myself. The woman you are making sense to have gone far beyond me, almost out of sight. I am on my way back, waiting to be spread wide apart. The pleasure of you, the sensuousness of you, touching the sinuousness of me, all my body, all of me, wanting for you to touch the center of me with the center of you. When I feel how you're touching my body, getting into my body has given all of me to you. All of me to you as much as one human being can get into another and feel another to another. Wonder if there is any difference in body, spirit, soul, and mind. It's my body that wants you, and it seems to be the only thought of desire that I have. Two bodies that have fused, have touched with completeness at both ends, making a complete circuit. Making them one. A circle that nothing can break. You've given me the circle in the most painful, intense pleasure. I'm in such a state that I could write about this all day. All I want is to preserve wonderful something which so purely exists between us.
Love Letter Georgia O'Keeffe to Alfred Stieglitz You know, I'd actually heard of this speech, but I didn't look it up. This is an interesting choice for a love letter. Let's see what it says. <clears throat> when I first received this Nobel Prize for Literature, I got to wondering exactly how my songs related to literature. I wanted to reflect on it and see where the connection was if I got to go back to the dawning of it all. I guess I'd have to start with Buddy Holly. From the moment I first heard him, I felt akin. I felt related, like he was an older brother, but he played the music that I loved, the music I grew up on, country-western, rock and roll, rhythm and blues. Three separate strands of music that he intertwined and infused into one genre, one brand. And Buddy wrote songs, songs that had beautiful melodies and imaginative verses, and he sang great, sang in more than a few voices. He was the archetype, everything I wasn't and wanted to be. I saw him only once. I had to travel hundreds of miles to get to see him play, and I wasn't disappointed. He was so powerful and electrifying and had a commanding presence. He was mesmerizing. I watched his face, his hands, the way he tapped his foot, his big black glasses, the eyes behind the glasses, the way he held his guitar, the way he stood, everything about him. He filled me with conviction. And then, and the most uncanny thing happened. He looked me straight in the eye and he transmitted something. I didn't know what, and gave me the chills. Somebody handed me a Lead Belly record with the song Cotton Fields on it, and that record changed my life right then and there. Transported me into a world I'd never known. It was like an explosion went off. Like I'd been walking in darkness all over the sudden darkness was illuminated. I must have played that record a hundred times. It was on a label I'd never heard of with a booklet inside that advertisements of other artists on the label. I'd never heard of any of them. But I reckoned, if they were, I reckoned if they were on this label, Lead Belly, they had to be good. And I needed to hear them. So I wanted to learn their music and meet the people who played it. They were vibrant and truthful to life. I was playing for small crowds, sometimes no more than four or five people in a room or on a street corner. Some songs were intimate. Some you had to shout to be heard. But I had something else as well. I had principles and sensibilities and informed view of the world, and I had that for a while. Learned it all in grammar school, reading that gave you a way of looking at life and understanding of human nature and a standard to measure things by. I took all that with me when I started composing lyrics, and the themes for those books worked their way into my many of songs, either knowingly or unintentionally. I wanted to write songs unlike anything anybody else heard, and these themes were fundamental. Specific books that had stuck with me since before I read the back in grammar school, Moby Dick, or Quiet on the Western Front, The Odyssey. So what does it mean? Mistress and a lot of other songwriters have been influenced in these very same themes, and they can mean a lot of different things. It was a song that moves you. That's what's important. I don't have to know what the song means. When Melville with all his Old Testament biblical references, scientific theories, Protestant doctrines, and all the knowledge of the sea into one story, I don't think he would have worried about it either. What it all means. John Donne as well, the poet-priest who lived in the time of Shakespeare, wrote these words. The cestos, 
an abdos of her breasts, not of two lovers, but two loves, the nests. I don't know what this means either, but it sounds good. When Odysseus in the Odyssey visits the famed warrior Achilles in the underworld, who trades a long life full of peace and contentment for a short one full of honor and glory, tells Odysseus it was all a mistake. I just died, that's all. There was no honor, no immortality. And if he could, he would choose to go back to the lowly slave as a tent farmer on earth rather than be what he is, a king in the land of the dead, that whatever his struggles of life were, they were preferable to being in this dead place. And that's what songs are too. Our songs are alive in the land of the living. They're meant to be sung, not read. The words of Shakespeare's plays are meant to be acted on stage, just as the lyrics and songs are meant to be sung, not read, on a page. And I hope some of you get the chance to listen to these lyrics the way that they were intended to be heard, in concert, or on record. Never people are listening to songs these days. I return once again to Homer, who says, Sing in me, O muse. And through me, tell the story. Bob Dylan, Nobel Prize for Literature. <clears throat> we've got one more love letter here. And then we've got one funny porn. If you want serious porn, you've got to come out to a live show and you've got to give it to me. <clears throat> Dear Coop, when for years you had affection from a guy, you find it suddenly turning to resentment, you begin to think it deserves some kind of comment. When the guy you find yourself disliking is loved by the entire world, you know damn well you better explain. What I'm talking about is me not liking you. Put yourself in my spot. I'm doing a picture that should have been done by only one guy. I know it. My entire company knows it. Start with the title, The Last Hero. Now, whom does that fit? Me? Hell no. Next, the author, author Edward Abbey, a ranger working in a petrified forest. They tell me before I meet him that he's written about himself, so he comes to Albuquerque, where we're shooting, and I meet him at the airport. Fifty guys step off the plane, but I spot him immediately. Why? He looks like Gary Cooper. To make matters worse, when I meet him, he talks like Gary Cooper. So now we start shooting, and I learn first that I'm an insensitive director who doesn't give a damn about anything except making the picture real. I give you verbatim my first and only direction. Just try and play this the way Gary Cooper would. When I say only, I don't get the hint once. I mean, it's the only thing I hear before each shot. And by the fourth day, I have now decided that I must get close to being Coop just so I can stop being hounded. Ah, but there's the rub. It sounded easy to me because I said to myself, Coop is a simple man. Natural. So I'll just be natural. And I learned to be big, big lesson. It ain't easy. My temptation is to ask how the hell you have done it. What is the secret to this peace within yourself and your world? But then I know you couldn't possibly tell me. And have to live your entire life, grow, adjust, mature. As you've done. 
And I know that at the best I will come remotely close, but more important, I also know just to be you will make me a better me. So, Coop, even though I may have been sore at hell at you now, thanks, Kirk. Letter from Gary Cooper. Letter to Gary Cooper from Kirk Douglas, who at the time was producing and starring in Lonely or the Brave. Cooper died days later. Huh. That was really interesting. All right, guys, it's your last chance to pay me. I know, I know. You're so very excited because we're moving on into the last piece of tonight. No? No one's excited. The last piece of tonight. No? Okay. Fine. We'll just get started with it then. Gosh, I don't even know what to do. Nothing? Really? Okay. Are you all asleep? Did you all get the virus? Am I the last? Did everyone die while I was doing this show? Did the, is there something on the news right now where like literally everything's on fire and as soon as I finish, I'm going to see it too? Is that what's happening? <laughs> that has happened before a couple of times this week. I got back from masturbating. I went masturbating for 20 minutes, which isn't that long for me. Sometimes I'll masturbate for like an hour. I masturbate for like 20 minutes, just 20 minutes. That's it. All right. I come back. I refresh my news. The NBA was canceled. Tom Hanks had coronavirus. <laughs> and somebody had sealed themselves in a bunker. 20 minutes. <laughs> Why am I a new zombie? Why aren't you? Okay. <clears throat> I'm not going to read the summary. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. This is going to be interesting. Ordinarily, Sansa Stark would not eat in bed. Not only was it undignified, she knew from first-hand experience sharing a bed with her little sister that crumbs were hard to get out of the furs they slept on. But it had been a long winter, and been a long time since Sansa had tasted something so sweet. She was the Lady of Winterfell. Oh, thank Christ. Lady of Winterfell and Queen of the North. Okay, she's an adult. We're good. And though the positions were demanding... She was entitled to a few perks as well. The cook had saved her bowl of lemon cream, and the mate had stuck into her room after the feast. Tonight had been the first time she'd tasted lemon since she was in the Vale. It had been a long winter, and though Sansa had eaten better than most, they had to stretch and seemed only enough to freeze fresh fruit to ward off scurvy. When she and John had wed... Is that in the ending? Did that happen in the finale? I was very drunk. When she and John had wed, they hadn't had the sh No, he goes to beyond the wall and pets the dog. He finally pets the dog and leaves. He, he, he marries... 
He marries Redbeard. Wed sugar for cake, and they celebrate the same bread they had every night. Sansa laid back on the pillows, running her bare feet over the soft furs, savoring the whipped cream and the mix of sweet and tart that reminded her of her youth. Once she thought there was nothing more pleasurable than lemon cakes. She was a glutton at heart. Always eager for sweet treats. I don't remember that from the books at all. But now she knew better that there were other things more pleasurable. Things that she let John do to her that were probably more sinful than gluttony. You're married, it's fine. It is without reason, and her fondness for him, that she did not turn him away when she shows up at her door. Now hold on. They're married. <laughs> That's a pretty good reason the Game of Thrones universe not to turn away your husband. You turn away a married husband in the Game of Thrones universe, you might end up headless. He would still come second to dessert, though. He'd have to wait his turn. <laughs> oh, this is a this is a story. John took off his boots and shirt, ooh, and cuddled into bed with her, still in his small clothes. Sansa moved closer to him, resting her cold feet on him. Bitch move. Of all the comfort she'd taken in marrying Jon Snow, this was the most treasured. One would assume her husband ran cold. After all, he had been murdered and kept in the ice cells for days. But the fire brought him back and burned inside of him. It made him the ideal bedmate. And secretly, she thought, an ideal lover. Since nobody else has heard him speak for years, let me try my best get Harrington. Put that away and come here. He sounds a little bit Danish when he talks to me and he's doing his Jon Snow shit on the show. He sounds a little bit like Scandinavian. I don't want it. I don't want it. All right, I can't really do it, Kit Harrington. When I'm done, John sighed. You really should be in on Vern's. I'm the Lady of Winterfell, John. I can do as I like. <laughs> John said, his voice stern. That sent a thrill down her spine. She liked it when John told her what to do. She liked being reprimanded even more. It had turned her into a bit of a brat, really. It had just been such a long time since a man in her life that she could trust. <laughs> accurate. That is a Lord-based statement. That is an accurate Lord-based statement for Sansa She does not have great history with men. It's true. That is a true statement. Oof. Ah, long time since she had a man that she could trust. So that I could take care of and show right from wrong. <laughs> Not since her father was alive had she felt so safe. John wouldn't let anything happen to her. He proved it time and time again so Sansa could let her guard down with him and be the child she still was deep down. 
the high, strong little girl who didn't think anything could ever happen to her. So she flicked a spoonful of whipped cream onto his stomach. Oops. She said with a smirk, Oh, I'm afraid you're right. I've made a big mess. John's jaw tightened. He looked at her with hard, dark eyes. Bedroom eyes, she liked to call them, but their lovemaking was hardly confined to their private chambers. It was just the way he looked at her that made her blood heat up. As if she was something to be conquered. There was pleasure in putting up some resistance, if only to be assured that he truly did want her. She felt like a loose woman whenever he stirred her like this. Sansa knew she lusted after her husband far too strongly, more than could ever be considered decent for a woman of her standing, and that it was not proper or dignified. But there was a pleasure in the shame of it, too, of knowing what a wretched creature she truly was. She licked her lips and stared back at him eagerly. Sansa had seen a man's eyes go dark before. She knew that they had lust, and that lust could drive them to do depraved things. But she didn't fear John when he was like this. John said, shaking his head, Oh, John, I would never, Sansa said, feigning shock. How could you even accuse me of something so? With that, Sansa flicked another spoonful of lemon cream onto him. This time it landed on his chest. She grinned at the sight of it. Her husband certainly made a handsome dessert. She licked her lips at the thought of it, remembering the power she felt when she fell to her knees and got him off with her mouth, hidden behind the trees of the godswood. She felt her face flush at the thought of it, remembering the taste of John, remembering how she hadn't cared if anyone stumbled upon them. The helpless look on John's face. She was a very bad girl. So much worse than sweet John could ever expect it when he took his little sister to wed. A depraved little thing who lusted after the man that reminded her so much of her father. And yet... John didn't keep teaching her how to make love, how to please him. John grabbed the back of Sansa's head like she had the first time and let her mouth over his cock, but this time he guided her to his chest. John said, his voice low. There was no mistake in the fact that this was a command. Sansa did as she was told, lapping at the whipped cream from his chest with an eager tongue. It tasted better coming off his chest than it did from a spoon, for she knew what was to come next. She looked up at him with the same innocence and caught his gaze. She ran her tongue down lower to where the first of the lemon cream had landed and licked it off his muscled stomach. When it was all gone, she pulled away to come lay back beside him, but not before she could go far and John's hand was back of her head pushing it down to his stomach. <laughs> Forgive me, Sansa said, before running her tongue along the ridge of his abdomen. She paused her lips around the warm skin and sucked until she left a small red welt. She smiled at the sight of it. John was covered in scars, but the love bites would fade fast, and she liked to see her mark on his skin. Sansa reached her hand down and felt Jan's hard cock through his small clothes. 
Cyril to rest and pulling around his chest. If you think so. John said, leaning down to press a kiss on Sansa's forehead before pulling it onto his lap. John flipped the skirt up over her shirt, over her shift, exposing her ass to the cool air of the room. She could feel his hard through the as his hand came down against her gentle swans. What was that? Sansa asked, unable to control a fit of giggles. I barely felt anything. <laughs> John said. Sansa rolled her eyes, not that he could see it. I don't know what I'm supposed to learn from that. <laughs> John grumbled, but his hand came down harder on her ass this time. Sansa enjoyed the soft sting of it the sound it made. He hit her again and again, never as hard as the second time. He was gentle with her, and when he was done, he ran his hand around the sensitive skin of her soft circles. Sansa didn't complain, for it wasn't the pain she was after. It was John's guiding hand, and she could put into making sure she was a good girl who behaved herself. He could punish her in all sorts of ways, and it always made her wet and eager. Finally, he helped her back onto her feet. Sansa crawled on top of him and wrapped her arms around her neck and her legs around his waist. I love you, she said, and pressed a kiss to his lips. I promise to be a good girl. John kissed her this time, grumbling happily as he did. She opened her mouth and sucked his tongue into his mouth, eager for hers. John knew that she was eager to be a father, even though the moon tea brewed for her to drink after each time they coupled. Their world wasn't ready for a child, and there was so much to do. John feared losing her along with everything else they'd lost in the wars. She was the same age as mother was when she bled out in birthing bed, after all. Sansa was not eager for a child herself, not yet. She'd felt through a child herself, and she knew a son or daughter would come with worries for her. She enjoyed being carefree. And yet, each time they were like this, Sansa could not help but think what an excellent father John would make. John reached a hand between Sansa's legs and brushed his knuckles against her clit and sighed into her mouth, pulling him tighter. Perhaps this time she wouldn't drink the moon tea. She'd tell him she was ready to grow and be a mother, and they could reenact their childhoods again, filling Wisterfell with little Starks. When she looked like the little glass, Sansa could see that she looked more like her mother than the little girl who'd gone off to King's Landing. And yet she was torn between the two of them, not ready to leave the little girl behind. John whispered her ear, thrusting two of his fingers and curling them. She moaned and moved her hips against his hand. No, they ignore them, Sansa said. It must have stung John more than she intended to because he pushed a third finger inside her. Oh, how can I ignore that? John laughed darkly, and Sansa's belly began to tighten. This was another game they played, another one that remained unspoken under the hidden layers of shame. Sansa pretended to be John's little girl, but John remembered exactly who Sansa was, 
and they were abed, John was the wicked bastard of Lady Caitlin Stark that had imagined him to be, taking possession of everything Sansa's mother had loved the most. What did make Sansa feel safe made her feel like she was still a little girl, but rather than imagining herself as her father disciplining her, he too imagined that he was the person before the Lady of Winterfell. She never told me it would feel this good, Sansa said, indulging John. <laughs> and when they laid back on the furs, all of that had vanished in the haze of lust that had possessed them in the first place. Sansa grabbed the lemon cream from the bedside table and finished eating the treat, and John rolled over, falling asleep easily. In the morning, they did not speak of such sinful pleasures and went on with the business of being husband and wife. So all that, and then he just sticks his cock inside, comes real quick, and she eats dessert. That was some wish fulfillment, baby. So that's a person who wrote a sex story who doesn't know what sex is. We've we've suspected before maybe someone's a virgin or not. That time I'm actually wondering if that person's a virgin. For real and for true. Because everything was about like being a child and the pretense of sex and everything's so naughty, but it's not sexual. And like food's better than sex. Like everything about that, I'm like, ooh, I don't know if that person knows what sex is. I'm really actually very, very curious if that person knows the mechanics of sex and how they would describe them if they were to enter into them. All right, guys, that is the show. I am the Grey Knight. I said at the very beginning of this, before I started recording, uh, that I understand that things are really hard out there for a lot of people and stressful and the uncertainty, the changing schedule, everything moving in a different direction, that stinks. I've done my best to heal up. I've done my best to uh, make myself more consistent as the Grey Knight in the project because I am just the dude, but then I'm also Jack. But then I'm also the Grey Knight, and I want to try my best to be consistent, to be patient with frustrations, to be positive, to put on a good show for you guys, to treat you guys well, and give you guys all that I can because... You guys were there for me when it was rough for me, and I needed some healing, and things were scary. And if things are for you, that's totally okay. You're totally allowed to be frustrated and scared and nervous about what's going on. I just want to say that I'm going to keep going. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here through all 2020. I'm going to be here beyond all the plans. I'm taking it seriously. I'm taking my health seriously. I'm taking the long game seriously. I am taking you guys seriously, all of it. So please take care of yourself. Please allow yourself to be a little bit anxious and a little bit nervous when you're reading the news and then do your best to turn it off and get away from it because it's limited, the information that you can get there. And you know it, the control we have, all the rest of it. So from the bottom of my heart, I'm going to keep on. I know that this is a great gig. I'm so excited. I think I'm doing some of my best work. In 2020 and 2019, I really do. I hope you think so as well. And no matter what, we'll keep it rolling forward. You're important. You matter. Your emotions matter. Take care of yourself, all right? Really? Please. 
mean a lot to me if you'd consider coming out to a live show, 10 Eastern, if you'd consider following, reviewing the podcast, whatever you do, wherever you follow, it doesn't matter. Reviewing and listening to the podcast just means a lot, wherever, however you do it. Social media is the same. It really would, especially if uh, if you're worried about money and, uh, and that sort of thing. Pay me in likes. Pay me in reblogs and reshares and, and tell friends about me. That's a great way to keep this whole jubilee going. That is the tip show. I will see you on the 20th. I do dearly hope. It's going to be a strange world between now and then. Let's see what it's like on the other side together, won't we? Thank you again to everybody who came out, everybody who tipped, everybody who suggested something. I had a wonderful time. I hope you did too. Let's all have a nice weekend. Let's all have a nice week ahead of us. Let's get through the rest of season three and beyond together. I know that we will and talk to you guys very, very soon. Okay.